Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Coley Moore. I'm joined again by Kyle Helson. And today we're here with some really bad news for everybody. You're training too hard for criteriums. But this is also good news because it means you don't have to train quite as hard. But before we dive into that, uh, first episode on FTP testing, um, we brought up something seems to be true because a lot of people seem to know it. And so, Kyle, why don't we open up with that? So according to my Google skills, it looks like we're thinking of the illusory truth effect or the validity effect, reiteration effect, uh, something like that, where people believe something is true because they've heard it a lot. All right. So now we have a name for that. And uh, and we may actually uh, have another case of that today with uh, criterium training. But in all fairness, it's kind of logical to overtrain for a criterium, to train too hard, to do too many anaerobic efforts, to do too many sprint efforts. Let's uh, let's let's go over the demands of Criterium. Okay, well, I feel like everyone at first is going to say, you need to be able to sprint. You need to be able to go fast. Um, you need to be able to turn your bike, usually lots of corners. And you need to be able to do repeated sprint efforts because you accelerate and decelerate around every corner. What's the number one rule in training? It's be specific to your target event. So if your target event's a Criterium, it makes sense to do a lot of hard sprint and anaerobic intervals, right? Right, yeah, and especially the closer and closer you get to a race, you think, okay, from farther away from your race, the more general, the more basic, the more simple training is, and the closer you get to your goal event or your goal race, the more and more your training should be like that event. All right, now what if you're one of those people who feels like, you know, I don't have a good sprint, I don't have a good one-minute power, and those are the kind of things that'll win me a criterium in a bunch sprint at the end. So... I'm going to go starting in December with these types of intervals. Um, do you know uh, a lot yes. of people do that? Yeah. So you're going to, you're going to think, Oh, these are my weaknesses and I'm going to really, really try to work on my weaknesses this off season or this winter, because that's a good time. You're, you're farther away from your, your goal races and you can really put in a lot of hard training that you don't have to worry about being fresh on the weekends. And that's, you know, a perfectly reasonable way to approach it. Except in a lot of cases, um, like, like, did we talk about responders and non-responders in the last episode? No, I don't think so. Okay, so, um, so most people are responders to most types of training. So if you're most people, and there's going to be a lucky few who end up, you know, being world tour pros and whatnot, who just don't respond to sprint and anaerobic interval training... And they can do a lot of this, a lot of these things, and get nowhere, and it's not going to affect them. Um, and we're going to get into how it affects people in a little bit. But most folks, when they go out and do, you know, you do your 15 second sprints, you do your repeated sprint intervals, uh, you do, you know, FRC or anaerobic uh, work capacity type efforts, um, you do see a really, really good response in your anaerobic power, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think they're also people love them and also hate them because they're some of the intervals and the workouts that probably hurt the most, but you finish them and you feel like you got a you definitely know you got a good workout in. And you and I think people incorrectly associate with how crappy they feel after a workout <laughs> with how good it's gonna make them later on. And 
and you and I have had a running joke about this too. Uh, like this is the American work ethic. Like, you yes. know, <laughs> if you I tried do... <laughs> pedaling your bike harder, <laughs> just pedal harder. Oh my God. I, is, is this the secret to my coaching success? <laughs> is I just tell people to pedal harder. <laughs> um, imagine if, imagine if you could drive next to someone, uh, angry director sportif style in the middle of a, a grand tour, right? And you just yell pedal harder to people up, up like Von two and stuff. <laughs> And would it work? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I feel like a bottle thrown at you, <laughs> Mark Matteo style. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so just pedaling harder does not necessarily work. And I, you know, I've consulted with a lot of people, and I've seen a lot of training programs where this does seem to be the case. So you shouldn't necessarily correlate with the difficulty of workouts like anaerobic workouts, hit workouts are really hard. That doesn't necessarily that mean that doing a lot of them is going to be better just because they're hard. Um, doesn't mean that they're going to be beneficial just because they're hard. Yeah. Isn't that how, isn't that how like CrossFit, um, isn't that, isn't that their <laughs> attitude? Not to shit on CrossFit, but I'm totally shitting on CrossFit is, is like, sure, isn't that yeah. the attitude? Yeah, yeah, their attitude is definitely like, oh, we work really hard. No one works harder than us. For the, I mean, they call the person who wins the CrossFit Games the fittest person on earth, and maybe the fittest for like CrossFit. But I don't think they're going to make it to the end of the tour. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I should uh, take a second to uh, to spell out the unintended consequence of too much anaerobic training is that um, you're actually training your body to be more reliant on carbohydrates at all intensities. And, I mean, this, this includes FTP, this includes endurance, this includes VO2 max, like everywhere you are more reliant on carbohydrates because what you're doing is you're taking your muscles and you're training them to, um, to burn more carbohydrates by doing these high intensity efforts. And so you actually develop more machinery to burn through carbohydrates than if you were doing more um, more focused aerobic and endurance type training. So what happens is you actually get to the end of a race and you are so depleted of glycogen stores that your uh, that your FTP it doesn't really work like this, but it effectively drops. Your sprint power drops. Your one minute power drops. Everything drops. So you get to the end of a race if you're too well anaerobically trained and you've got nothing left. And this is why, you know, some really good sprinters make it to the end of a race uh, because they hide well. Um, but, and this is a, this is a strategy aspect. And, you know, if this is you, then you need to do that uh, as your criterium strategy. Um, except now the difference between most of us and really good pros is that really good pros are so reliant on oxygen that they can do, you know, they can race for, you know, 3000 kilojoules worth of work and um, they're not going to see that big of a hit in their five minute power, their 20 minute power. Uh, usually 30, 40 second power takes a decent hit um, and sprint power is probably not going to be too different. You know, we've all seen Andre Greipel do 1900 watts at the end of a race. And this is because he's really reliant on oxygen and, um, and he's got a lot of his glycogen stores left at the end of that race. Um, and so how much training is enough to make you too reliant on carbohydrates? Well, the answer is, uh, it depends on the person, but I think for most people once a week, 
for several months is probably enough to uh, be a problem. So I started coaching an athlete last fall and I was looking at his old training program and every single Tuesday he was out doing hard anaerobic efforts. And this is for months because his anaerobic power wasn't that good and his coach figured he needed to work on it. And so he was going out and doing these efforts and he was never able to really do many aerobic rides. Like he would get assigned tempo rides and threshold and he would just kind of fail uh, a lot of them. And he wasn't really having good races because what was happening was he was so reliant on carbohydrates that he couldn't really make it to the end of a road race and, or even a criterium and be competitive. He was just gassed. And, you know, we're now a couple months later and he just had his first set of races this weekend and he, um, and he doubled up and he felt great on all of them. And he set, he set power records, um, for, you know, between 30 seconds and about, you know, 30 minutes in, in both his first and second races. So, um, so he was much more reliant on oxygen and he was much much more aerobically trained, which meant he could double up in criteriums and do uh, both a three race and a one, two, three race. And, you know, and not just be hanging on for dear life in both of them. So, um, yeah, so too much anaerobic training is not always better. So you're saying that, you know, just because workouts are hard doesn't mean that they're more of the, like hard workouts are good, more hard workouts are not necessarily better. No, it's that's a horrific idea. I, I actually did a consultation for someone who had been coached by a certain person who shall remain nameless, and he he uh, he parted ways with this coach, and he decided that in order to get even better, he was pretty much going to double the workouts that he was doing. <laughs> and this is like mid cyclocross season. So he's oh. racing really hard on the weekends and he's training really hard in the middle of the week. And, you know, during our consult, I said, take next week easy. Just like spin easy, do some technique work, uh, do some endurance riding. And, you know, don't even do openers before your race. Like, just get to your race do a long, solid warm-up, do some good course preview. And he did. And suddenly, he went from like, you know, like 30th, 40th place out of 50 to 80 people to like, he got his first top 10. Nice. And he, yeah. just, and he kept going like that, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So he stopped training quite so hard and he rested and he got faster. I wonder if there's a correlation here. <laughs> so I think... This is these. There's a couple, probably a couple things at play here. One of them is that, you know, just going out and thinking I'm going to get faster by doubling the amount of work you do. That is definitely true, especially if you do it in a uh, thoughtful and pre-planned manner. Like, oh, in a year, I want to be able to do twice as much work. Well, that's fine. But just going out because you feel like it, you're just going to double your workouts. Like that's definitely a recipe for disaster. And oftentimes it is. And this is one of the pitfalls of a lot of self-coached people. And uh, not to not to rag on America too much, but this is a very American work ethic is, you know, we're going to work harder. We're going to work longer. You know, we're going to pedal our bikes harder just by sheer will, by 
you know, <laughs> good old American work ethic that builds, you know, indestructible Ford trucks. Um, which I would, if I ever off-roaded, I would totally get an F-150 Raptor. No question. <laughs> um, but one of the big problems that happens here is that now people start overworking. Is that people start doing too many anaerobic intervals. They do too many high-intensity things. And this leads to burnout. Like my first year uh, training myself, which was my first year bike racing, I had a severe case of overtraining because... This is exactly, I did exactly this. I did exactly this. I was, you know, I decided, I looked up all of the hardest workouts in the back of training and racing with a power meter. <laughs> I wrote down a very ambitious schedule. And you did them all I over did, and I, over and over again. I did them all for about two months. And then the wheel started coming off the wagon. I got to my goal race of the season, my first race, which was bat and kill. And, um, and I pretty much died about 12 miles into that 60-something mile race. And I spent the rest of the race slogging up these dirt hills at like five miles an hour because I had just overtrained myself. I <laughs> And now, oh, now, we're, sure. yeah. now we're doing a podcast on overtraining. Uh, and, so, and so after having trained myself so hard and having blown up so spectacularly, I actually spent like four months off the bike entirely. And that's, that's how I solved that. And I didn't even know if I was going to go back into bike racing. <laughs> I did. I didn't. It was. It was. I just dug the hole so deep. I think the other thing that you get in there is that the other unintended consequence of the anaerobic, hard, high intensity interval training efforts is that it does teach you mentally to be able to dig really, really deep. And that means in a race, you're going to be able to dig very deep and too deep, in fact, to be able to recover <laughs> because I've, I've done that. You know, you like you're in a crit and you see that no one wants to pull the brake back. And so you go to the front and you pull the brake back. But I you're able to do it and do it too well to the point that you when when you pull off, you are overcommitted and you actually struggle to get back on the back. Or people do it in the brake. They drive the brake so hard they shell themselves. Um, but well, here, here's a good for instance: is a couple years ago I went out with a friend of mine who was a good sprinter, uh, uh, just about as good as I was at the time, and another friend who was not a great sprinter. He was uh, what you might call a spindly climber, and we were doing sprints. We did like probably ten or twelve, like fifteen second sprints. One of us leading out, and the other two sprinting. And after five or six, me and the other sprinter were leaning over the guardrail, just dry heaving. And <laughs> and our climber friend was like, you guys okay? No, we're not okay. What's wrong with you? He's like, I'm going as hard as I can. I don't know why you guys are vomiting like this. So so the point is that he couldn't dig the hole deep enough like we could because his coach was training him in nothing but sprints pretty much. My coach was training me in nothing but sprints pretty much. And so... Um, and so this leads to criterion performances that I'm sure a lot of people have seen, and um, and so I actually pulled up one of um, one of the old power files for one of my athletes from um, from uh, you know their early early days uh, coaching themselves, and um, and I'm looking at a 42-ish minute criterium, and this athlete could do about you know 12 1300 watts at the time. So the race starts out with um, 
a couple efforts around the 900,000 watt, um, you know, sprint range. And then it, uh, all the sprints out of the corners and there's, you know, probably a hundred, 200 in here. Um, and they're all in the 800 range halfway through they're in the 700 watt range <laughs> near the cool. end, the best in like the last quarter, the best sprint, except for the, for the final sprint is about 700 Watts. The final sprint, uh, he could only manage just over 900 Watts. Ouch. And so in WKO four, what I did was I selected this, I selected the criterion and I did a linear regression. So basically I figured out like, what is the average increase or decline of the average power throughout this race? And the answer is this athlete is losing 0.9 Watts per minute over 42 minutes, which means 38 Watts average lost over the course of a 40 minute criterion. Ouch. Yeah. Imagine losing 40 Watts off your FTP. I mean, for, it's not exactly like this, but for all practical purposes, we can think about it. Like you just lost 40 Watts off your FTP for the end of a crit. Now thing is like, is this, do you need this or not? This seems to be a really big question because I know a lot of people who actually hate FTP because they think FTP is just a big dick wagon contest. Mm. And to be fair, it sounds like that a lot of the time. What's your FTP? What's my, what's my FTP? My FTP is this big. How big is your FTP? It's, it sounds a lot like it and no question. However, um, it is crucial to criterion performances and not only because, you know, FTP, as we said in the last episode, you can hold it for like 35, 40 out to like 70, maybe 80 minutes, something like that. It makes a lot of sense, at least to me from a physiological perspective, that a higher FTP will let you do a higher power output for a criterium, even with all these little sprints. Yeah, I think the other way you can look at it is if... You're, if your FTP is higher than the amount of anaerobic work that you have to do to hit these seven, 800 sprints out of every corner, the anaerobic contribution is going to be less. Yes, that's a very good point. And um, so you're, you're going to end up fresher for that big anaerobic dump in the last minute of the crit if you have to use less of it throughout the race. Like everyone's done those, have felt like that in a race where in the opening 20 minutes of a race, you know, um, you can go really hard out of every corner. And then at the end, you think like, I'm still trying really hard. I'm telling my legs to go really hard, but you just can't dig as, as deep of a hole because you've done all of this work leading up to that. There's two very important factors um, here is that like, okay, let's say, let's say you normalize say 300 Watts in a criterium. Do you think you're going to be able to do that if your FTP is 250 Watts, it's going to be very painful. <laughs> yes, it will be very painful. Um, but you know, the short answer is unless you want to break the normalized power equation, no, you can't actually do that. And the best way to do that is by increasing your FTP. But this is not the physiological mechanism that I wanted to talk about today. So the first one is actually pretty basic. Um, and this is just glycogen sparing. The more glycogen you have in your muscles at the end of a race, the harder you can sprint, 
and the harder you can have a one minute or a five minute effort. And this is one of the things that sets pro cyclists apart from us mortals is that after racing for, you know, a couple hours, their power outputs are huge. Like, like they just gone off the couch. And so, so conversely to, to just, I guess maybe bring people up to speed a little bit who aren't as familiar with it. If you look at the fuel that your body burns for aerobic versus anaerobic efforts, anaerobic efforts are largely dominated by the amount by glycogen and burning glycogen. Right. Whereas if you're more aerobic, you're burning a mix of glycogen and fat. So here's the other thing is, um, what is the primary fuel for sprinting? I'm sure you know this, right? Yes. Uh, short sprints, it's, it's going to be all ATP, phosphocreatine. Um, exactly. So ATP and phosphocreatine are the two big ones that we're looking at. ATP, like they get, ATP gets depleted in about a second or two. It's very, very brief. And then phosphocreatine has to regenerate ATP from the used, um, from the used ATP, a- which... ADP, right? Yeah. ADP. So we don't have to get into the chemistry of this, but um, it, it probably sounds pretty familiar to most people. So, how does creatine phosphate, which is our you know ATP regenerator, how does that get replenished? Is something that I don't think a lot of people really think about. And when I took biochemistry, this is one of the very first things that we learned is about this enzyme called creatine kinase. And okay, maybe I lied a little bit. We do have to get into the chemistry a little bit. So, um, so the way that the creatine phosphate system works in order to regenerate uh, energy for sprint efforts is it takes creatine kinase and it takes uh, creatine, this, that's the enzyme, and it takes creatine phosphate and it regenerates ATP from ADP. And this happens in the main cell body. And so the way that a lot of enzymes and metabolism work is they can actually do um, the same chemical reaction in both directions. It just depends on how much of what you have in that compartment. So if you've got a lot of uh, creatine phosphate and you've got a lot of ADP, creatine kinase is going to regenerate ATP. And so now in order to regenerate um, a, um, in order to regenerate. So now in order to regenerate creatine phosphate, so we can redo this again, we can't do it in the same, uh, in the same part of the cell. So evolution is very clever and it's moved creatine kinase to also be inside the mitochondria. And so inside mitochondria, we regenerate ATP aerobically. And so now as this ATP leaves the mitochondria, it can actually stop by creatine kinase and say, hey, um, I hear you guys are looking for some phosphates. Can we provide that for you? And creatine kinase is like, yeah, we've got all this creatine here and it needs some phosphate so we can send it out back out into the cell so that this guy or this girl can sprint again. And so this is exactly how it works, is that you regenerate creatine phosphate in the mitochondria. And this is incredibly efficient and it's very clever. And this is why we need more mitochondria. And this is why aerobic training is so effective for repeated sprints. How do we get more mitochondria? We raise FTP. It's really that simple. So what you're saying is, and this, I think people are often on just on the cusp of kind of thinking about this where, oh, and they don't 
they see this effect, but they don't really understand why it happens. But, oh, if you have a larger aerobic base, you seem to recover better from sprint work. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the things that um, that I remember Andy Coggins saying a couple of years ago on some forum is that recovery from efforts is mostly aerobic. And then I was reading a PhD thesis from someone looking at um, fuel use in high-intensity training. And they also looked at the uh, substrate use for recovery. So when you recover from sprints uh, in this PhD thesis, the researcher found that about 80% of your recovery is aerobic. And that's from 30-second sprint, 30-second rest, and uh, it's a little different for something like a 30-second sprint and 15-second rest. It changes a little bit, but not too much. I think if people think about how they feel when they do something like 30-30s, it makes a lot of sense because, if especially if you're wearing a heart rate strap, after the first couple, you start to see that your heart rate doesn't come down during that rest 30 seconds anymore, and your breathing becomes really ragged, which means that you're if you think about it, it means you're really taxing your cardiovascular system. Even if you're sitting there 30 seconds, like really easy, ticking over at zero, you know, zero watts effectively. Yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, and actually, this is the same thing that happens in cyclocross races. Um, I'm sure that you've seen people posting, oh my God, I spent 40, 60 minutes at my maximum heart rate or like within 10 beats per minute of my yeah. maximum heart rate. And I hit my max a couple times. This is because you get no rest in a cyclocross race or virtually no rest. And it's so easy to keep digging deep and digging deep. And that's why this happens because your body is trying to recover aerobically from all of these hard anaerobic efforts. So the important thing really is to know that the to support repeated sprint performance you need to have a really good aerobic base and this is where normalized power actually comes in very handy is that um normalized power will give you a pretty good approximation it's obviously not perfect uh you don't need to write letters we know um oh that this is actually the realm in which normalized power is useful uh like I think they talk about this in training and racing with a power meter that the idea of normalized power was developed to try to better approximate the aerobic equivalent of a ride or a race that is too stochastic in power output to really use just straight average as the number. Right. And stochastic meaning up and down, not steady, but kind of random. Random. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, so so this is where normalized power comes in really handy is you can get a sense of effort and FTP. And by looking at your normalized power through a race, it, as well as average, you can actually get a sense of the aerobic burden that uh, that the race is actually putting on you relative to your FTP. And I actually have some data here from some very highly aerobically trained athletes. And... We're going to look at one now. This is a criterium from an elite female road racer. And, um, and you know, her sprint's not amazing. She'll hit like 900, 950. Uh, most, uh, most, most of the women I coach are in, in about that same range for sprinting. Um, and, you know, I'm looking at a criterium file here, and the normalized power is 
about her threshold, maybe 10 or 20 watts lower. And there's hundreds of sprints. And we're talking in the five to 700, 800 watt range uh, throughout this whole thing. And uh, this is this is the important part is that once again, I put a slope uh, or I, I put the um, I put the linear regression over the power trace and I got the slope. So take a wild guess what the slope is. I'm going to guess it's like, you know, she lost 10 watts or something over the course of an hour because the other guy lost, you know, 30, 38 watts. Yeah. So um, she actually gains <laughs> 0.8 watts a minute. Yeah, so as the race gets harder, she's able to meet the demands of the race and put out more put out more power as the race dictates it. Through all these hundreds and hundreds of sprints, she's fine at the end of it and she unleashes a really good sprint. Like her, her um I don't have it I don't have it up with me exactly, but um but I th- I think here she actually put out her best 5 minute and like one minute and 20 second power, like right at the end of the race. And that's really what you always want to see. Right. And so I'm actually, uh, okay. I have one more power file and this one is, um, has a 0.8 watt per minute gain. So this is, this is from the same athlete, second criterium and finishes with, uh, with one of, um, I believe what was one of her season best sprints. And this is actually pretty common. Um, one of my athletes who won a national uh, criterium championship, she's very much like this. She's highly aerobically trained, and she can sprint hundreds of sprints. And um, and actually, one of the consults I did, somebody asked me, um, you know, oh my god, like she she won this criterium thing. She must have done so much intense training. Like she must've done so much sprinting or like, what did you do? High intensity interval training. Did you do like a lot of, did you do weights? Like, what did you do? And I said, nothing. We did none of that. I trained her aerobically and that was it. It's there, it's not like there was a, there was a secret. It still came down to essentially having a good FTP um, as being the, the, the first most important factor in the race. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, because uh, this is something that Adam Meyerson said a while ago. Um, I'm I'm not going to quote him exactly because I don't I don't I didn't write it down because I, I think he was even quoting himself when he said it. It was something like um, your sprint determines your race strategy. Your FTP determines the level at which you race. And I know a lot of like cat threes who are, who hate FTP training. They hate FTPs. It's a big dick waving contest. Yeah. Uh, all that's probably true. But at the same time, if your FTP was 50, 80 Watts higher, you would probably be racing the NRC series instead of your local criterium training series. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing is like, you can find plenty of cat four, cat three men who can output the same P max as Mark Cavendish, but <laughs> yes, there's going to be like a, a hundred watt FTP difference between Mark Cavendish and this, you know, this random cat three crit racer. You are exactly right. I think another thing that we also need to address is how much of this training do we actually need to do in season? Cause this is something that I see a lot of people overdo as well. And, um, 
And so I'm going to give you an example from a cyclocross racer that I started coaching. Um, and what happened was he said, you know, I was training at this pretty well-known coaching place. I'm not going to name them with, uh, with one of their coaches and I'm, uh, I'm feeling pretty tired. I've got a lot of races coming up. What do we do? And so, um, so I started looking at his training schedule and I'm going to take you through, uh, just briefly some of the, some of the most important races in the new England calendar, because it includes Gloucester includes night weasels. I mean, who doesn't want to do well at a race called night weasels? <laughs> so this period includes Holy week and he did, and he was racing twice a weekend and and sometimes once during the weeks for, uh, probably five weekends out of these six or so. And during these weeks, he was doing high intensity interval training two days a week, most weeks, except for one where he did it like one day a week. Mm. And his power was really low compared to what he could do like a month before racing. And like his normalized power was low. He said he was tired. <laughs> um, he, he was, you know, he was not in a good spot. He was training too hard. And I looked at this training schedule and I was like, how is this coach not realizing that this guy is overdoing it? So, um, so for the next three weeks, he kept, he kept, uh, racing once or twice in the weekends for the next three weeks, we did almost no high intensity training. It was a little bit of sweet spot, a little bit of endurance. And we turned, um, we turned the weekly cyclocross practice into just party bike and work on your cross skills. Don't don't go hard. Let everybody lap you. It's fine. Work on your work on your skills. And it took about three weeks, but he started feeling better. Okay, so not only that, he went from coming in about 40th out of 70, 80 riders to coming in like top 10 or 20 in fields that big or larger. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah because and in the comments on his on his races. It showed. He was like, I finally started feeling better today. I had a really good start. I kind of lost it near the end, um, ne- you know, next day. And I was advising him the whole time, rest, <laughs> don't be stressed, mm-hmm. eat a lot. Um, and it's it's amazing that, uh, that there's not a cult of recovery in cycling as much as there is this cult of suffering. Mm. I think people are getting a little bit better as, as like, as evidenced by the number of um, Norma Tech compression pants Instagram posts that you can find. <laughs> Don't start uh, me on Norma Tech. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, uh, essentially what you're saying is that what was happening is that he was getting very, very concerned that his big time, uh, big primary focus races were coming up, and so he was doing more training and that and more race like training, which actually was ultimately hurting him in actual races. Uh, I guess, but the thing is, his coach should have recognized the signs that he was that he was getting overcooked and that he should pull it back, and just didn't. And and it, it I mean, honestly, to me, it's incredible that um, that some coaches who I know should know better just keep pushing people. I mean, all the problems that I've ever had with athletes I've coached, almost none of them were solved by more training. <laughs> yeah. I think that is a good point. Like, especially if you're 
not a professional, you'll you'll you'll, you'll probably tend to err on the side of like doing as much as you can, but you don't with the time that you have, but you don't think that you have or remember really that you have all these other things in life that also stress you out, that also make you tired and that also kind of require recovery after. Yeah, exactly. And this is stuff that, that also needs to be taken into account for your life is that in order to be your best on, in a high intensity race, you need to be really well rested. Like the, the more I rest, my athletes before these races, the better they seem to do. Like, um, like this year, I started giving one guy, uh, you know, openers set the day before a race. You do some efforts, kind of wake your legs up a little bit. Um, we didn't do that. He had three or four days easy, and then he did a two-hour endurance ride as openers. And he was nervous, but <laughs> he is a dyed-in-the-wool sprinter. Like, <laughs> like, like, seriously, this kid is sprinting at like 24 watts per kilo peak. He's amazing. Yeah. And the next day he had a phenomenal race. And then the day after he had another phenomenal race. So, and, and he, and he commented, you know, I was nervous about that, but it did the trick. I, I had a great race. Well, I remember even, I've seen you give me openers before back in the day before road races and stuff. And you would even comment like, don't go too hard. Like don't do too many sprints. Like go just until you feel like you are warmed up and then stop. Yeah, so a good set of openers uh, is also not even necessary a lot of the time. Um, as I had, a, a, I had a coach for a while who had all these amazing little Zen sayings. Um, like I swear to God, he was he was a monk in another life, or maybe even this one. I don't know. I should ask him. He said, "Openers are privileged for the well rested." Mm. And you know, there's definitely a point where you are too rested. And that's when I think you really need a good set of openers, because I'm sure you've had this happen to you, and I've had it happen to me, was you do a race one day, and you feel like shit, and the next day you go race again, and you feel great. Yeah. So yeah, you, yeah. so your first race was a set of openers, and <laughs> and that can be too well rested. You need to you need to have a little harder a little harder the day before. Um so yeah, so actually, I actually leave a lot of openers pretty open ended for a lot of people, except for the really, really intense sprinters, who I'm like, you need to rest. So we're just gonna give you some endurance riding. Um, I think this 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 kind of goes to a whole other point that you could make is where when amateurs borrow techniques and training from professionals, they don't consider a lot of the other elements that are not the same between amateurs and professionals. One thing people I probably don't take it don't take into account a lot of times is that like pros oh they'll you know they'll throw up their rides on strava and stuff you'll see what they're doing in the off season think like oh they're not really doing like maybe traditional periodization or whatever but the pros aren't getting like super fat in the off season either right like (laughs) oh they're they're ftp tanks to 380 watts you know instead of 410 or something you know some like minuscule difference that that um uh, a month-long team training camp will like bring that right back up you know in February and come, you know, March, they're good. They're good to go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think even if a lot of people had the ability to train like pros, uh, I, well, it's not that I think this, I, I know it is that we would not be able to. Okay. So, so what are our take homes here? Um, so I think the first thing is to always make sure that you have the right aerobic training under your belt before you start doing any specific sprint training 
Um, yeah. Um, and, and this kind of goes to the idea that, you know, these crits are, these crits are not short races. They're not, you're not going out and, you know, uh, just going out for 20 minutes and racing. You're still going to have to sit in um, at tempo or maybe even a little bit higher for 40, 50, 60 minutes. And so you need that aerobic base to be able to sit in and not have sitting in feel like you're dying. Yeah, exactly. Because anything over pretty much a minute is aerobic. Yes. Like, I don't care how many, how well you sit in. I don't care how much you can hide from the wind. You like, you get to the end of a race and you're going to be sure that it was aerobic and the better you are aerobically, the better you're going to have a criterion performance. Um, so, okay. So, uh, do we have any other take homes? Oh, in season, don't work too hard. It's always better to be too fresh for really intense races. Like if you're wondering, should I go out and do this really hard race? How long does it take me to recover? This is a very important thing to consider. Um, at which point do my legs feel really, really good? Um, so there, there's a lot of stuff to balance, but doing, but, but for these really intense races for cyclocross for criteriums, less is more, especially in season. I think the other thing to think about here, especially in season, is that if you wake up and you feel bad and you're like, Oh, I'm supposed to do like a tempo ride today. Like if you bail and just do like an easy hour and a half, like coffee shop ride long-term skipping that, you know, tempo 90 minute ride that you're supposed to do is not going to ruin your season. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> you know? not. And if you feel like crap, you didn't sleep well the night before or whatever you, something like that, like you're going to actually be better served by listening to the fact that your legs feel bad and they're either you're, you know, you feel just run down, then, you know, spin easy for an hour and go home. Like make sure you have some spaghetti or something at dinner. Like they're obviously sticking to the training plan and sticking to some, um, programming is good, but listening to yourself and listening to your body is good too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and this and this is I guess this is this would be our, our last point for today is that um, individualizing this kind of stuff for what kind of rider you are. Um, if you really want to become a crit racer and you have a horrible sprint and you need to sprint better, uh, yeah, of course we're going to work in uh, appropriate sprint training throughout your um, throughout your season, but we're not going to hammer it, you know, in f- instead of aerobic training because you absolutely need to do that and you know you're not gonna be able to get off the front and ride your solo breakaway lapping the field without that aerobic training okay so i i think if all this is a little confusing to you if like if you've kind of got a handle on the whole training thing if you're a coach or you've been pretty self-coached for a long time and you're really well aware of all the periodization literature you've read uh you know the training bible and training racing with a power meter you've read joe friel's book um, you've done a lot of research, you've talked to a lot of people, you've seen a lot of training programs, and you kind of have a handle on what you're doing. Um, all, of this, all of this probably makes a lot of sense to you. Uh, otherwise, my, my honest advice is to get a good coach. I'm available, by the way, and so, is, uh, so are my, uh, my empirical cycling coaches. Wow. Sales pitch right at the end. Yeah. <laughs> if, perfect. If, if you made it this far, thanks for listening. Um, we, are, uh, we are now on Stitcher. Uh, we're also on uh, our main base for podcasting is on soundcloud and uh itunes is currently pending um so that will be uh up in a week or two please subscribe 
And um, also, Kyle, we should uh, we should talk about um, why we're not advertising on this podcast. Oh, we're, yeah, we. You may have noticed if you listen, no ads, no ad drops. As much as I was giving Coley a hard time about having to read drops, he's decided that he doesn't want to do that. Um, so you won't hear us endorsing. I don't know weird products that we don't actually use um (laughs) yeah so um so our model is going to be that if you think um the show you just heard is worth a couple bucks worth of coaching we would love to have it so head on over to empiricalcycling.com and head to the podcast uh page and uh, there's a donate bit and uh, you can send us a couple bucks of love and we would very much appreciate it if not uh that is totally fine um you know we don't want to we don't want to force anything on anyone and um really the the point of this is to just make sure that uh everybody's training better yeah and also if you have any topics you'd like to hear send send email uh send us suggestions we'd love to take them we've got a a list of things right now that we think would be make good episodes but of course we want to see what you guys think too yeah, so send an email to empiricalcycling.com. That will go straight to me. All right, everybody, thank you again for listening. Bye.